This week's episode of This Is Only a Test is made possible by the fine folks at Indeed Prime. Uh, tech talent, are you tired of sending endless resumes ready for companies to apply to you? Well, on Indeed Prime, one free application gets you in front of thousands of companies like WP Engine and PayPal. And everyone gets one-on-one access to career coaches to help seal the deal. Whether you're, look, or you're, whether you're hiring or looking, meet your match on Indeed Prime. Join now at indeedprime.com slash test. Again, that's indeedprime.com slash test. Hey, let's start the show. For Thursday, July 4th, happy Independence Day, Americans. Welcome to This Is Only a Test, the official podcast of tested.com. USA, USA. Well, I know there are a lot of you out there who are international-based listeners, not USA-based ones, but this week I think we can be especially USA proud because, one, it's July 4th, Independence Day, but also Women's World Cup, Team USA. Yeah, so I don't really actually follow football at all, but I do when the U.S. crushes countries that do care about football. There's nothing that makes me quite happier than seeing our mother country kind of suck it when it comes to to soccer. I mean, they had a 13-colony lead, and they blew it. Yeah, I mean, they had video review to their advantage. Oh. They they were trying to, to cheat their way to victory. They and, even had a penalty kick. And we even had one of our star players not play, sit out the entire game. I mean, we tried, England. We really we, tried. We tried to let you have... A fair game, but it's uh, the 11th game winning streak. Congratulations to uh, Team USA uh, for making it to the World Cup Finals. My favorite comment was about from a bunch of, of British folks on Twitter talking about Alex Morgan's celebration when she was sipping tea oh, after a goal yes. as being classless. And I'm like, that is exactly how Americans celebrate sports at all times. <laughs> like, we are not... Classy does not ever describe it. I mean, it, it's, in American football, if we're going to go back to uh, the uh, d- different sport, uh, celebrations after touchdowns are kind of controversial, and the league had to kind of, kind of set some guidelines as to what can and can't be done after a celebration. Is that the same for... for International football for soccer? No. no they celebrate do, all the time. Yeah, and it's all rehearsed. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone has their... It's like this is the original like like a, a video game dance, right? Like the, the shortcut key. You, you press your shortcut key for celebration dance. It's IRL emotes, yes. It's exactly. That's exactly it. Thank you for setting me straight. Yeah. IRL emotes. Well, uh, we'll be all be watching this Sunday, we believe. Uh, USA versus who's the other? We don't know. The matches. We're recording this on Wednesday, and the match hasn't happened yet. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, Kishore, for being in. It's a duo cast. If uh, you didn't realize already, Jeremy is out this week uh, already getting into the July 4th festivities. Uh, So maybe he'll be back next week. But, Kishore, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I feel like it's been a while again. Yeah. 
Yeah, last are week. We, is this episode 1,000? Where are we No, at? I think we're at 50, I don't know, 506, 505, 507? I don't know. It doesn't really matter until we hit 1,000. Yeah. But um, uh, past week, all right. You were gone. Yeah, you were gone last week. Oh, you missed some excitement. We had Gunther on. And you know what? We got some positive, positive responses to Gunther's appearance. I listened to the episode. Gunther was dropping some, like, straight econ... 201. I mean, I don't know what the economics <laughs> class on Bitcoin is, but he was he started to jargon it up too. And you know what? That's a fraction of the the depth he will go into. You know, our lunches when we go out with him and when he and Jeremy go deep into crypto, uh it, he had to pull it back a little bit. And uh, well, I'd love to know if we'd like for him to go deeper or if we'd like to have him back at all because well, Bitcoin has stabilized a little it bit. It stabilized. So, like mid show, it yeah, crashed, right? It did. It crashed. And it turns out, we're going to jump a little bit ahead. I was going to make this our top story this week, but I guess we can talk about something else for a top story. But it turns out that uh, Coinbase, which is a very popular exchange for Bitcoin, went down for a little while. It was like half an hour or something, 17 minutes. It went down uh, while we were recording. And that was responsible for the 2000 point crash. In Bitcoin, and since then, you know, we're gonna give a, a shout out to Bitcoin today because every time we do it, I guess that's when Bitcoin fluctuates. But in the past week, it has kind of stabilized at between ten and twelve thousand, so still pretty good compared to a week and a half ago when it was kind of floating about eight. And I, I ask Gunther every day, like, what does this mean? And he goes, Oh, he's not gonna give any predictions because. This is very, very short-term fluctuation. It could go down to 6,000. It could jump up to 15,000. Who knows? You're looking for the wrong indicators. You're, you're talking to Gunther. I'm looking at what Gunther comes into the office with. If he's in <laughs> like a new ride, I'm like, oh, no, Bitcoin has really risen. You've got extra cream cheese on the bagel this morning, then we know he must, have, uh, he must be feeling pretty good about that crypto. Yeah, so um, we also, a little bit of housekeeping. Last week, we put out a request for you out there, listeners, to make suggestions for the name of a reoccurring segment on cryptocurrency, on Bitcoin, if one you want it. It sounds like people wanted it. We didn't any, get any uh, musical um, submissions. Not yet. Not yet. And maybe the best thing to do is, in the future, I'm going to have Gunther come in here and just shout out some phrases, right? Shout out some hodls, hodls and, and, uh, and, and shout out some stuff. Uh, some bit connect, bit connect, bit connect. So you can have some sound bites to make. What were some... the names suggested? So we had some pretty good names. Tales from the crypto. Oh, you gave away my best one. That's oh. the favorite one. It was, that came up last week, though. Oh, did that come up? Last yeah, week? I think somebody said it on the podcast. Was was he on the show two weeks ago? Then no, no, no. We oh no. Somebody said that. I didn't just make that up. That that one, I think, I've completely lost track of time. That one did come over Twitter, and that one is my favorite one so far. Tales from the crypto. Yeah. Sorry to steal your thunder. No, that's all right. That's what all right. was there other ones that were good? Um the uh Miner's Minute. Uh oh, um what was the, what was one that I liked? Um uh Coin Flip? Coin Flip. Oh, yeah. interesting. Tales well, from the Crypto is I think just that's, clear winner. Though. That's the best one. It's like a little black mirror. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh let's get on to our top story. Story this week. All right. So, whew, our big story is well, sudden announcement of the departure 
of Johnny Ive. Johnny Ive, not alive anymore. Yeah. I told you I was going to make a short circuit reference in this week's episode. I got it in there. Had to happen. (laughs) I've been waiting how many ever years I've been on this podcast to get short circuit references going. No disassemble. No disassemble. No disassemble. Well, uh, it's Johnny Ive, not Jimmy Iovine. You got two JIs there. Jimmy Alvin still, I guess still, I think he's being phased out of Apple. He's, he's less involved now. But uh, Johnny Ive, chief designer, what, I, don't, I don't know what his title was. The he's guy, just head Johnny of, Ive. Head of design, been there for 10 plus years, since before Steve Jobs came back, right? So this is like multiple decades uh, that he's been at Apple, but really responsible for the entire Apple hardware design language. All, every product you see coming out of Apple, he's had a hand in uh, today. Um, and, you know, we'll talk about the news and we'll talk about how that came about, but I think it's worth spending some time giving a little bit of a retrospective on his time at Apple, kind of like the, uh, the importance of his impact, some of, our great, some of his greatest hits, some of our favorite products that he designed and why that stuff is important. Because contextually, I, I think we all you know, know iPhones, know iPads, know about the Apple Watch, but like, you know, not a lot of people think about the, the, the PowerBook, you know, the G4, and, and, but we'll get, we'll get to that. So uh, earlier this week, Actually, what was the date of this, um, that the announcement, it must have, it was, was it? It was like Friday of last week. Friday. Yeah, it was like one yeah. of those, like, try to sneak it in. Yeah. And there was this whole press release. Johnny Ive is, he's only 51. He's not like, he's not retiring at all. But he is leaving Apple to start his own design company, Love From. Which I think is already in a existence. Right? Mm. Did, had it had he already kind of started it and started staffing with it before this was announced? I, I'm sure he's been. I mean, what's the bigger news? Right, Johnny Ive leaving Apple or Kevin Durant leaving the Golden State Warriors? It's regardless. It's something that's you been know, in their weirdly, minds forever. It's Johnny Ive. <laughs> yeah, it's. <laughs> I think it's Johnny Ive, of course. Uh, so it, it feels like. He's had his one foot out the door for a long time. You see less of you've seen less of him at the Apple announcement events. The only appearance you really see is you know in the uh, these design videos, the product videos where he does the voiceover. Um, but really, that's that's it. And yeah, of course, you see him like at the, the events in the the, uh, the the demo areas, the hands-on areas. There's always those photos of him showing the products to reporters or talking to Tim Cook. But really, he has hasn't been very public facing in terms of his involvement that last big um big profile and the last big uh last time we saw a lot of johnny ive in the public was with the launch of the apple watch that was just like three four years ago now and you know when he was how proud he was when he uh did those all those watch bands talk about the uh the collaboration with one of his design friends um the new apple store tables that that, the watches hide under um and I think there was a New Yorker profile where he talked, like, really strongly hinted at him have, being very interested in designing a car. And, you know, Phil Schiller has talked about, you know, the name of the, uh, the, the, the 10R and the, the, the 10S and how those names are very tied to car naming. So, like, obviously the executive team and the head honchos over at Apple are, are also big car nuts. Uh, but there is no Apple car, right? So maybe... Johnny Ives wanted to leave to flex his design muscles on something that's not just 
a rectangular piece of milled aluminum with glass on it. I think this has been in the works for a long time. This wasn't like a, oh, we got into a, a tiff, Tim Cook and I, last week, and it's like, well, it's time. We'll talk about the Wall Street Journal story. But, I, but I, I think this has been like a slow, I think what you point to is m- the more likely story. There's been sort of a slow, steady kind of arc that's been leading to this point because we aren't seeing him front and center and everything certainly not in the way when jobs was still at apple that we'd see johnny ive much more well and famously he and steve jobs had a wonderful working relationship like he was one of the very few people that steve jobs would give all the the credit to in terms of the design like they really went hand in hand in terms of their philosophy and how they thought about product and user experience uh but his role went up right so you know johnny ive uh, in the past couple of years, not only was the head of their industrial design and the, the physical idea of products, but also technically he was in charge of the the UX as well, the, the all the software side. After uh, Scott Forstall, uh, quote unquote, left slash was pushed out, who knows? Uh, Johnny Ive was put in charge of all of design, and that was a huge responsibility. Now we're not gonna. Like pretend that no one else was also managing that, right? No, Maybe, there's hundreds of people. Yeah, on exactly. That team. Right? There's a that it is not a it. You know, the, the hierarchy does not is not very is not flat, right? No, it's, let it, us not lead into this lone genius no, idea. No. Uh, but this also marks kind of a departure finally from that, and people have astutely pointed out that Apple, you know, previous to to. Uh, the past couple of years, never really made their designers known. They never put the names out of their designers. Uh, but in in like the New Yorker profile, I think Ben Thompson wrote a piece about how in the New Yorker profile they started seeding, you know, some of these names of designers. And when they made the announcement that Johnny Ive is leaving, they did say that you know he would be replaced by you know specific designers. Although reporting to a an operating person, well, operations I mean- person. I guess I don't. I mean, Johnny, I've like, had multiple roles, as you said, and you, and we haven't even discussed the role he had in the building in their new headquarters. Oh, yes. I mean, that was his last big product, right? For and, Apple, was the spaceship. And so, I, when you have somebody operating in those like multiple roles, there's no title for that person. They're yeah. just doing all these different things. So you're not going to replace them with one person either. And so it kind of makes sense that this replacement for you know some of the official titles is probably going to fit in a bunch of different spots i'm not sort of sort of surprised by that yeah organizationally they'd have no you know executive vp of design anymore right people are going to report to tim cook it all falls under the chief operating operating officer jeff williams but uh they did say that hardware design and um, industrial design and human interface design the all the software stuff will be two different leads. You're going to have uh, Evans Henke uh, will be VP of Industrial Design, and Alan Dye will be the Vice President of Human Interface Design. So at least you're going to have separate people on on the you know, th- that people can point to as being responsible for these things. And I'm sure they have been heavily involved you know, for a long time. And I'm sure that even as Johnny Live is, Ive is leaving, even if he was not to have any more involvement in Apple, which is not going to be the case because Apple is the first big customer for his new design firm. Uh, but they have products in the works that 
he's had a hand in that we won't see for years. A, right? a I, decade, I'm sure. I'm sure. I, I can't imagine that Apple would let him go without him having some huge design input on whatever AR glasses, for example. Like if you're talking about design being an important thing for something, uh, a product that a category that has not been proven yet to be consumer friendly, uh, AR would be chief among them. You ne- kind of need the confidence of uh, a Johnny Design. You know the the. For lack of a better phrase, the uh, the reality distortion field that he brings to it as well. If there's one product or one sort of des- design aesthetic that you feel like is going to have the biggest legacy in terms of his work. Oh, God. So the, the, and this begs the, going back a little bit of the history, right? Mm-hmm. So the con- let's set up some context. Before 2000, 2001, before 2001, that was when the first iMac came out. And this was, you know, Steve Jobs came back to Apple in the late uh, late 90s uh, with the next acquisition. Apple Apple had had iconic products before, right? The original mm-hmm. that Johnny I have no involvement with, right? I mean, you heard us Macintosh. talk about the Newton all day long here. <laughs> I mean, the, the Newton head of its time, right? Maybe, maybe yeah. you know, uh, but the original Macintosh, right? And even mm-hmm. on the software side, hello, with the, the paint, their paint application, right? That is an iconic piece of computer hardware that was highly desirable, that had all these uh, both tech technical and kind of kind of ineffable qualities that you would associate with a coveted piece of of technology a desirable piece of technology uh, but then you know if you were to ask someone what did an apple computer look like in the mid 90s i think most people would be hard pressed to describe what a what a macintosh looked like in the 90s cuz it was kind we of like still probably reference the apple IIe even though it was 10 years after that came out yeah, yeah, and in 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 the nineties, the the apples, they were, they were kind of like your IBM PCs. They were they were beige boxes, rectangular boxes with a monitor that sit on sit on top of it, and they were weren't really distinct. So, while uh, we might think of like the iPhone or maybe even the Apple Watch as some of the things that today we are most connected with in terms of the Johnny Ives influence, it really was the iMac that translucent, candy-colored, plastic computer that had a CRT built-in, that had no floppy drive, but had a CD-ROM drive, right? Uh, that was the a revolution in computer design. Yeah, I I know it was a later iteration, but the t- when, when it really hit me how big of a deal this was, is when the color IMAX like surface like all the, the like, multiple the, 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 the multiple you colors. Remember those ads, right? They were I remember the, rain, the, ads. the circle rainbow of like all these different fruit colors, and they weren't. They were computers I saw in schools, like computer labs. Mm-hmm. We used to have computer labs in schools, kids. People didn't just bring their laptops and and, <laughs> and 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 iPads and Chromebooks to the class. There were designated rooms in our middle schools for computers. But it was a sea change when computer labs started getting filled with these iMacs. It was the cool place to be. And they weren't the beige box anymore. Yeah. As soon as it started to translate to like like furniture element in your home, that you could start to think about this is a thing that is not just a, a piece of utility. It's a piece to that should have beauty and artistic representation in it. Like a lot of things started changing and I'm sure the iMac wasn't the first computer to really do that, but it was the first one to do it at a mass market appeal. 
Which naturally bled into what came next. Well, after that, you also had, and of course, the candy-coated plastic stuff, that also bled into the uh, the laptop side. You had, what was it? The, it was before MacBook. It wasn't the PowerBook, but what was that uh, laptop that Apple had that was also kind of like the candy-coated shell? Um, yeah, I don't remember the name. Well, aside, separate from that was the, the PowerBook G4. And the PowerBook G4, they had the titanium one, uh, but that was that was the big change in I think that set the tone for Apple's design today, uh, and and that's you see it in the iPad, you see it definitely in the MacBooks, you see it, you see even some of it in the the Apple Watch, but that all metal laptop, which was also a complete complete revolution in terms of how you would make a computer, in terms of the materials used, in terms of the, the fabrication, how expensive it would be to make a, a laptop out of metal, um, in terms of designing something that would have these design constraints. They couldn't, it couldn't be modular in a certain way. It would need to fit within this, the, this volume, which would get smaller and smaller over time as they went from the PowerBooks and the MacBooks to the, the, the MacBook Airs. Uh, that was a huge, huge design design change, and, and also due to Johnny Ive. I, I think he probably doesn't get enough credit um, for accelerating some of the developments that probably had to happen in material science and processing because he's notoriously had that high bar, and he kept pushing the envelope. And we see that reflected in every phone, not just the the iPhones and the and the iPads now we see that reflected in like the glass we see it reflected in um in like uh, the the shells that we see on these not just the interface uh and I think that's not in small part due to the bar that he set for the field yeah iBook is what I was thinking of that was the that was the weird clamshell yeah, yeah, plastic yeah. Uh, laptop and then you think about it so in the 2000s you had um God, you had so many products. You had okay, you had the the PowerBook, you had the iMac, iBook. Uh, then, of course, you talk about the, on the desktop side. Uh, they had their uh, you know, the, the the Mac Pros. Uh, then the iPod, right? iPod also two thousand one, mm-hmm. and iPod was obviously so revolutionary. But some one of the things that's striking about the iPod was how many different designs. It went through both the iPod, the iPod Mini, the iPod Nano, the iPod Shuffle, right? Um, the iPod itself, the, the, when we talk about the iPod, uh, meaning the iPod Classic, uh, the thing that was constrained by the storage medium, right? Mm-hmm. It, was, it was that form factor because they found, uh, I think it was Toshiba who made a hard drive that was smaller than 2.5 inches that fit in this form factor, a thousand songs in your pocket. And uh, had that white plastic design, but the iPod every year it would have a new design that was iconic. You had the first iPod, the second iPod had the the touch button wheel. Third iPod, the four four dots, the four bu- dots button. Do you remember those four yeah. buttons? And then the iPod fifth gen, which was didn't that get color? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, there was an iPod color screen, mm-hmm. and then the one that was. The aluminum one that was the the one that released, I believe, in two thousand five. The first one I bought, which had the the touch wheel, 
right? The the um, that was huge, right? And also could play video and had the the kind of milled aluminum uh, back as well. Uh, iPod Mini, which was massive, right, in terms of its success, and that that iPod Mini, that kind of curved uh, side aluminum design, you see that ID in products today. You you kind of see it still in like the iPhone, the iPod Mini. Um, you definitely see it in like remote controls and like that that type of like uh, flat curved side with the flat top and bottom. Uh, the Nano, oh my God, the Nano went through like four or five designs, right? That first Nano, which like was very had all the like the very glossy front that was very easily scratchable surface. To the the Nano went to a tall screen, went to a no uh, nothing but a screen. Basically, the, the Apple Watch was a Nano at some point. Um, my point is that. In the first half of you know twenty the two thousands before two thousand seven, design must have been super fun for Johnny Ivan's team. It, it was probably just wild westy. I don't yeah. know if like fun is the well, right. I mean, for a designer, term. right? Like yeah. the, the the ability for every year to revamp this device and people would go crazy about it and and really have that push it. That's in huge contrast to today where. The iPhone 6, 7, 8 were essentially the same design. The 10 and the 10s, same design. And all indications are that, you know, whatever Apple is going to put out at the end of this year is essentially going to be in the same form factor as the 10, 10s, and 10R, but maybe with like a different camera array system in the back. It's not nearly as exciting because all the advancements are now. Under the glass, literally, it's the display that's under the glass. It's the the processor and it's the software. Yeah, and I think we it's easy to get jaded and cynical because of how rapid some of the early advancements are in a product cycle in terms of the outer shell. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not saying jaded in terms of consumer standpoint. I think the consumer should be happy with whatever is coming out. And I think it's completely unrealistic to expect the type of iteration that we saw 10 years ago. I'm sorry, 18, 19 years ago now. Uh but from as a design perspective, like where does he find his outlet? I think that probably led to a lot of the decision to want to. I mean, you, you talked about the things that he's designed outside of Apple. He's designed like Christmas displays, like mall displays. toilet. Yeah, right, right. The Johnny I right, like he just wants to flex these muscles. I, he wants to design a chair. I bet. I'm sure he has the chair designs. He wants to get out there. I, I'm sure. I like. I, I'm not surprised at the departure. He's been there almost. 30 years uh let's talk about the rumors of why there is a wall street journal report that said tim cook was not valuing design as an important part of the product development process um which struck me as being kind of a, a overly bold statement and i think tim cook himself took it that way because then he wrote an email directly to the writer uh and editor Basically, completely um, rebutting the story. Yeah, this was very that was and that was not a like that, that was not a PR person went through this email and like crafted it for it. No, this was like he wrote this email. It looked like to well, me. he didn't write it to Wall Street Journal. He wrote it to CNBC. Oh, okay. And so, but it, still, it, he it wrote the this writer. email. He did right, and and it was a. I'm sure it was it passed through PR oh, and, and all sure, that. but it wasn't like but it that was carefully. strongly worded. Yeah, uh, like this report from the Wall Street Journal does not reflect reality, um, and and it, 
you know, <laughs> hope you're ha- hope you're doing well, and then immediately got into it. Um, but Wall Street Journal stands by the reporting, and even if it's not true, the specifics of the, the wording that how, you know, it's pretty bold. The claims that that Wall Street Journal story had about Tim Cook being disinterested in product, and you know, which led to wild speculation, like, oh, so Tim Cook's first time seeing these products was at these events. Of course, I don't think that's no. the case at all. I, I do think as a CEO, he's got to have his hand, and he's got to be, you know, d- but I'm sure that in by comparison to Steve Jobs, there undoubtedly Steve Jobs is a more product-oriented person. Yeah. Undoubtedly. And Apple is a completely different company now than it was in 2005, in 2001, even in 2007, the products they're making now and the type of, like, the, the feats required to to manufacture, design a product, get it into production, and have it reach the hands of hundreds of millions of people. You know, a million people buy an iPhone every two days. That's insane. Like, Is it really that much? I, I, think, it's, I think it's close to that. Yeah, I think it's like, it, at launch. At launch, okay. Yeah. Um, maybe even more than that at launch, but regardless, on average over quarters, that is not. I mean, the CEO can't just be a product person or can't just be an operations person, right? So, I can see, I can see all the reasons why. I do think it it makes sense, and I think uh, the Verge had a story that made a very good point that you know it is about time that we stop thinking of these companies as being run by one person or needing the magic touch of of one person. Yes, I think a vision does need to be had and you know and and, and they shouldn't just be making random products and and there needs to be some type of cohesion, but that's not through the grand vision necessarily of just it's one person doesn't make or break that. Yeah, I mean I agree. I I think the most likely explanation is what you said earlier that he probably got bored. Like, you know, and also designing that building uh, it was probably a taxing process, let's just say. And it hasn't been terribly well received. Really? In the context of how it fits in the larger urban landscape, which is sort of like the bigger conversation that's happening, it's oh. like, where does this fit? It like is totally disconnected from the world around it. It I is. Mean, it literally it's, it's, is a spaceship that landed <laughs> it, on the ground. I think that's a, just a manifestation, the architectural manifestation of how insular Apple is, and the secrecy. Like that's. I, 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 yeah, but it, like so that's weird. It, but it's, it's not an Apple store, right? It's not meant for public interaction. I, I guess so, but I like buildings are part of the no, urban landscape, yeah. right? Yeah. Anyways, the point of it is, I like it makes more sense to me that he that he wants to flex and do other things. The one uh, issue that I have or wondering I have for the future is Johnny, I think, always pushed them more towards looking at some of their product lines as accessories, as fashion products as well. well like that's the also watch. what the Wall Street Journal said. They, it, yeah. it, it made the uh, assertion that he was disappointed that the watch was marketed less as a fashion accessory and more as a piece of technology, even though they clearly launched it as a high-end fashion accessory with those edition Apple edition watches that reportedly did not sell very well, and there are thousands left unsold, and with all these very expensive uh, watch bands, right, inviting celebrities to wear the watches. And, and they do wear the watches, and it has sold well. Um, but 
I, I do think, yeah, fashion technology, I, I, he definitely is more into the fashion side. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see Apple move farther away w- from that with his departure. They are mm. already moving away from that. There was a time when having an iPhone was like a status symbol. And it's less of that now well, than it was. And it could be just because it's just so much more common. AirPods the are the status symbol. I mean, Apple still has has a firm grasp on that. Uh, their Beats acquisition, I think, was totally a play at being yep. relevant. Uh, but that was that's a different type of status. That's status less design and status more by celebrity association and, and marketing. Uh, but high fashion, I do think, I agree. High fashion, uh, they are going to take a step further back on that. I don't think they're going to, there's no way they can launch, and I might eat my words, but I don't think they're going to launch their AR glasses, if they do, as a high fashion, the way they did their Apple Watches. It's definitely going to be more about utility and experience. That'd be amazing if you have to get like oh a, a two-hour fitting session. Hermes, Apple, AR. It could yeah. happen. Which partner... Oakley? No, they wouldn't do Oakley. No, no not no. Oakley. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to go to your sunglasses. It's going to be like Ferrari edition. No, like it's stuff like that. And like something no. way, way bizarre. Yeah. Uh, the other big question I have is who are his other clients? And will he be able to talk about his other clients in that way? Right? If another big technology company, is there a non-compete with this? I can't presume there is. But if... Let's say even in the, in the tech world, not a Microsoft, they have their own design people, but if like a boutique tech firm, right, a Chinese tech company, or even if a, a company as big as like a, uh, an LG wanted to throw hundreds of millions of dollars at love from, one, can they get the business? Two, if they got the business, would they be able to say it? I mean, where will we see... Johnny Ives design I would, muscles flex next in the consumer space. I would think for for a guy that can kind of pick and choose his spots at this point, why would you get back in oh, I, consumer I don't electronics? But, right? but, but I'm curious is like, is it going to be consumer facing or is it going to be more installation based? Like, is he going to design, you know, buildings? Is he going to design? I would love uh, to see him take on public spaces. Like, mm. what would he do with a public space? <laughs> I mean, it could he, be really weird and <laughs> awful, but why, I, like, I don't know what to expect. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be awful. Here's why I think he won't design a public space. It's because it's going to be not controlled by... It's, you can't control how the public use it, like an Apple store. <laughs> I think he's going to be too precious about that. Why would he design a public square where people can graffiti and and and, what, and, and and kind of loiter what about an airport or something like bizarre like that something with I, I definitely think something with prestige i think he's the type of person who definitely wants to make an impact and i could yeah air, airport i could definitely see an airport something maintained oh, i'm so curious that, yeah i mean that's where it would be so interesting to see him flex because like if if some company is like hey do my you know, electronics device. It's just not interesting. I mean, his... I think more likely he'll end up in like some furniture thing or something like that. Some home use. His his uh, con- contemporaries, right, have designed boutique products that when they Mark Newsom when when they when they uh, when they go to the public they are ridiculously expensive. Like I think Mark mm-hmm. Newsom has that 
hourglass that's like instead of sand it's like these perfectly milled little beads that flow down like we're talking about products that are tens of thousands of outside of reach of a consumer and i wonder also if the design constraints of needing to make a product that sells even though admittedly for a very high price of like $400 or $1000 if that's not the realm he wants to work in. If he wants to only, you know, he wants to only design boutique products that can only that you can only make 100 of or that there's only so much of this material because he's a materials guy too, right? He's going to start working with uranium because it's a precious oh, resource. Yeah. Uh, asteroid mining, right? Give <laughs> get me some give me some iridium or give me some some uh some graphite from the stars. All right, we've probably been a little too long in the tooth about Johnny Ive, but Congratulations on your retirement from Apple, at least. He got away. He got away. So, sure, presumably you were not here last week because you were watching Endgame? I mean, not no, that, that isn't why I wasn't here last week. And yes, I watched Endgame twice. <laughs> you watched week. it twice? Wow. I watched it you two more times. really did your part. Holy yeah. smokes. Okay, so uh, Endgame re-released in theaters. I think we did talk last week about the uh, the news that it would not be a ton of footage. And I was I did I also went to see it again in theaters. I contributed to the six million dollars made in the U.S. Uh, the update is that it is now still twenty three million dollars short, and it's globally, not going to make it. It's not. There's no way it's going to make. I mean, it, that in the grand scheme of things, when it already has made two point seven billion dollars, twenty three million doesn't sound like a lot, but it's also two months after release. Uh, it re- only made six million dollars this weekend. So it, like the I mean six million U.S. and they're not going to get another push. This week with Spider-Man Homecoming. Almost everything out. is in the U.S. right now yeah. in terms of its its uh, yeah. gross. So if the only chance it really has to beat Avatar is if they do another re-release, a celebratory like anniversary release or some some big thing, maybe for an Oscar push. Watch Endgame in theaters before it gets, you know, to get, to get that you know, Academy Award consideration. I wonder if like, RDJ is going to get like a supporting actor push or something like that. No. I don't think he's the best actor in that. I don't think so either, uh, but I think everyone does extremely well. But I, I don't think, I, I, honestly, I think Nebula does a great job in that. Karen I mean, Gillen RDJ was job. good. He was don't, good. Get, don't yeah, get me yeah, wrong. Yeah, but yeah. I'm trying to think. So like, is Chris Evans. Yeah. So is Scarlett Johansson. So is Paul Rudd. I think they're all pretty good. No, Paul Rudd was just playing Paul Rudd. Oh. Uh, regardless. If you're thinking about seeing Endgame in theaters, I, we can now confirm the extra footage. Eh, yeah. eh. Uh, as expected, there was don't go don't go see Endgame to see the extra footage. Yeah. is what I have to say. Yeah, you get they are literally DVD extras. Like you have tags at the end of the they, they come at the end of the credits. Almost it's not a post credit scene. Like it says Marvel Studios, and then you have some, here are some DVD extras that we're putting in the theater for you. There is a wonderful uh, tribute to Stan Lee and Stan Lee's cameos yep. in that, and some never-before-seen footage of him as he was shooting those cameos. So that was very lovely to see. The actual deleted scene itself, 
completely understand why that was cut from the film. It was like paced wrong. It, I mean, um, it, it was cool. it's a DVD extra in that you don't see all the full final CG elements. You know, a lot of stuff looks previs. Um, there's a nice cameo. Actually, ties back into a joke. I won't spoil it, but ties back into a joke that's made in the film. Uh, but unnecessary, completely unnecessary. And I was surprised this was one of their favorite deleted scenes. Like I would have thought they would have put something a little more meaningful into there. And then even the little teaser that was put in for Spider-Man uh, Far From Home, kind of blah. Yeah, I don't. I didn't understand why they need it. Like, first of all, I don't think they need, like, unless, like, I'm misreading something, the Spider-Man movie is going to go crush things. It's made $39 million already Tuesday night. So, like... It's going to destroy the box office. I don't understand what the teaser thing was about. Yeah, yeah. I don't think people were there to watch Endgame again not realizing they could buy Spider-Man tickets. And even if they did, this little preview was not enticing enough to get them. You know what would have done well? If Endgame did one of those like Fathom Events things where they had a round table with like the cast or something afterwards is like a one night only as a way to mimic what we saw in the funeral scene, which is how do we close out this, you know, saga, this era of the MCU with Kevin Feige in the middle talking to I was going to say akin to what we saw with the DS9 documentary. Yeah, 100%. Where it's just like a little bit of a making of podcasts almost. A bit, the problem is that that would then require you watch a three-hour, two-minute movie and then sit for another 20 minutes. Yeah, but if they did it as like a one-night-only thing, that would have been amazing. Yeah, I, I, I could play like a little spoiler class. Right? That's like how a, you get over the line. Oh, a D, a, here's... No, no, you can't... I, I'm wondering if they release Endgame with the commentary track, right? Yeah. Like it's a ta- it's the directors and the actors talking over the movie for three hours in theaters, would that count for Endgame's box office total or would that be counted as a separate entity in itself? I don't know exactly how this stuff. You want to hear the most amazing tally. fact about this? My wife only saw Endgame for the first time this weekend, this past weekend. Wow, she's the one. She held out. She's the one who, uh, did she like it? I Like we got halfway into our conversation about it and I was like, okay, you didn't love this movie enough for me to like sustain this conversation. <laughs> all right well that's our endgame update for the week i doubt we'll have any more endgame updates unless some big revelation happens uh but now we're just kind of waiting for home release in other movie news now the flash film dceu hey dceu has been on a quite a streak lately uh Streak? Yeah. Aquaman did very well. Billion dollars at the box office. I thought it was a totally fun film. It, it was I enjoyed fine. it. Wonder Woman, great film. Uh, we also had uh, Shazam, which I totally enjoyed and I dug the hell out of. That's coming out, I, I think, I on, on digital. I had some major problems with that film. Oh, you know what? I take it back. I'm going to say one more thing about Endgame. While Endgame in theaters reinforced the fact that between the portal scene and Mjolnir, was probably the most euphoric moment in this year in theaters. I will stand by that Shazam had the most joyous, joyful moment in theaters this year. And More so than Endgame. No one was ending? happy in Endgame. The ending, the the the, the big uh, third act yeah. surprise was the most joyful moment. I was that put a. A bigger grin on my face almost that Mjolnir was like, a, oh my God, holy hell moment, tears on my face. But 
joyful tears for Shazam. They nailed that that third act. Um, and I, my only my only regret for the end of Shazam is I thought they needed a better post credit stinger. And uh, I don't even remember what. It oh, was I remember. Mind. Yeah, they, oh. they needed they needed they needed the Rock. They needed they yeah. needed Dwayne there. But so, a Flash movie. A Flash movie. So this has kind of been in a, in a strange place because uh, Ezra Miller, who was booked to he he did the Flash in Justice League and cameo in Batman v Superman. Uh, he had been. Uh, tied to do a Flash film, a standalone Flash film. They had a director, and then they kind of changed directions, and there was a whole report about how Ezra Miller had an attempt to write the story himself in order to keep the role, but... Yeah, it was see, with Grant Morrison, too. Yeah, he yeah. tried to write it. So he, like, got out heavy hitters to rewrite this thing. But that DC or Warner Brothers wanted to move away from his take on the character, which I thought was a disappointment because I love his take on the character. I think he's a wonderful actor. Uh, but... It turns out that now they have another director, another new, maybe another new director. Uh, this being the director of of it, 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 the part two. That's right. And Ezra Miller might be staying for that now. So this concerns me. Help me understand this. So if you're bringing in a horror director, a good horror director, into the Flash. Which is kind of a goofy character. Are we getting darker Flash? Which is what Ezra Miller wanted. Why are we doing darker Flash, though? I mean, there's reverse, only one I mean, the dark Flash, story. The Maybe Flash's two. story, his life is kind of like, you know, there's he, a lot of tragedy. He has tragedy, but he's not, like, typically he hasn't been a very dark, for, you know, brooding character. No, it's, it's true. Reverse Flash is pretty dark. There's a lot of time yeah, travel stuff villain. they could do. I, w- I was thinking Flashpoint Paradox is where that's too that's too ambitious that's too too uh, too much multiverse building that they're yeah. not ready for. That's right, but that's where the darkness I think actually is. So I'm like, I mean, this is the er- the first Flash movie. It should be kind of light and fun and well, goofy. They, the, the, also, the other thing is the Flash exists on television right now. We yeah. talk about multiverses, right? The Flash on CW is very lighthearted, and that fulfills that niche and i don't necessarily think that you know barry allen uh criminologist forensic analyst barry allen plays well on big screen there's got to be some something cool that makes use of speed force but i mean at the same time like what has worked for aquaman big goofy film yeah wonder woman had like like heart to it but also it looks like Wonder woman 1984 is gonna be big bright kind of probably have some a lot of you know callbacks to the 80s like i think that's what works what didn't work arguing about martha in the middle of yeah, batman no, v totally, superman totally totally and and you know the flash backstory in justice league the little that they showed was kind of in angst as well him you know trying to redeem his father and and solve yeah. that crime I, I i'm wondering what is what is the overarching theme of a flash movie what is the thesis, right? What what's the thing that you, what's the big takeaway, the big lesson, right? Like fastest man alive, but what does that mean? Like why why is that significant See, from a thematic perspective? And like I understand it if they do time travel because then they'll bring in the 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 moral of like you can't really change your your and past. I, 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 that's I think it's a good point. Like as fast as you can move, time never stands still. 
right? You can't stop the passage of time. There are things that you cannot, you cannot be in all places at once. When you think of all the flash, like uh, conundrums in the comics, it's, you know, I've planted 10 bombs in the city. And yeah, he can kind of, as fast as he can run, as as much places he can't, still can't be mm-hmm. everywhere at once. That is like, that is his, that's, that's, that's kind of the burden, right? He's expected to be because of how fast he can be, but he thinks as fast as a human and he just, bad things will happen. I will maybe, re- maybe you have some, 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 something like that. I remain skeptical, but like all the people involved in this project seem to be the right people. So Yeah, and, and he's just a fun actor. I think he's going to bring a lot of like fun, fun to to whatever role, and however they portray it. Like he was, he was the comic relief in uh, in, in Justice League, and so I'd like to see more more of Ezra Miller uh, as the Flash. Spe- speaking of a different direction for an established director, that's right. Ryan, well, is it really? Is it though? Maybe. No, I think it's a return to form. Maybe. Oh, no. okay. oh well, well, I'll take it back because that 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 was under assumption that he was out of form for uh, for Last Jedi, which I don't think of at all. Uh, I think it's more of a uh, return to his roots. Let's call it that. Because Ryan Johnson's new film, Knives Out, first trailer is out, and this looks like rollicking fun. Yeah, I love it. I mean, it's a whodunit. It's Which is very, very in vogue right now. Like, you yeah. have uh, Murder on Oregon Express. You have the, the huge success of the Netflix Adam Sandler murder oh, mystery Jennifer Aniston right. film. I actually watched that. Uh, Was it all right? Well, the reason I watched it, it was it was fine. It, it, you can it, just say autoplay. It, it's it's <laughs> autoplay. But the reason I watched it was because they had taken inspiration from uh, the Thin Man story. Oh, which is that the relationship the husband mm-hmm. wife murder mystery solving couple. Uh, and I love the Thin Man series. I I enjoy the spit out of whodunits. If you yeah. don't take them too seriously, yeah. And and this is very much in the vein of a like clue. You know, in a building. Lots of characters. There is a, a murder mystery to be solved. A uh, you know a, a patriarch dies. You have all these characters. You have Chris Evans. T- talk about something. That, something a portrayal that maybe return to his roots, but definitely you know to his Johnny Storm days or yeah. a little uh, Scott Pilgrim. A li- a- yes, yes. This is a mm-hmm. role that the Scott Pilgrim version actor and Chris Evans would would take. Kind of a little bit of a jerk. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it looks stylistically, looks looks awesome. And I say it's a return to his roots because it reminds me so much of Brothers Bloom. Oh, which is yeah. my favorite of his films. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Knives Out, can't wait for that to come out. Uh, the other thing, so we got, we got some, uh, we got some gaming news. I mean, is gaming is the cool. hottest commodity right now, all of a sudden. <laughs> Did you see the, the tweet he retweeted where uh, uh, a fan said that was watching Good Omens and thought that Neil Gaiman was like a... 18th century writer. <laughs> it, was, it was like, like <laughs> was like an Oscar Wilde type writer. And no, it's just he writes that way. He writes with such interesting prose and delightful characters that he just doesn't seem of the day. And uh, the first piece of news is that he has announced that Sandman is he's involved and it's going to happen as a TV series, not a movie. Sandman has gone through more like near happens than almost any other comic franchise. I I, we, I can't believe that Watchmen came out before Sandman. Yeah, I think like just a year or two after Sandman came out, there are already rumors that it was going to be adapted. First of all, happy it's going to TV. Well, da- Netflix. Da- ne- well, whatever, same thing. Yeah, yeah actually, even better Serialized. than Netflix. 
uh, David Goyer, of, uh, who wrote the Batman uh, Dark Knight. Kind David of. Goyer is a coin toss. David Goyer. I'm a little higher on David Goyer than Norm, but still. Have you seen his directorial debut, Blade Three Trinity? <laughs> I have seen that movie. Mm. I did not realize that was yeah, him. That that that's that's <laughs> David Goyer, uh, but d- d- he's capable. Uh, but Neil Gaiman, who show ran, who kind of like cut his teeth doing the Good Omens. I'm glad he did Good Omens, which is fantastic. But Sandman is, I think, more near and dear to more more of Neil Gaiman's fans' hearts than Good Omens. I now he has all the experience, and he can do this right. This is a don't fuck this up kind of. Si- show though this is like one of those that people are going to be freaking out about in the biggest way and they're going to put so much pressure you thought pressure on star wars and like lord of the rings was intense the the hardcore concentrated fans of sandman who've never seen this adapted are going to be all over this project it's already stirred controversy so uh neil gaiman and david goyer are uh, EPing it. It's actually a show run by Alan Heinberg, who worked on Wonder Woman and uh, Crazy Anatomy. But you know, whatever. He's also capable. Uh, Eleven episode series, which I think is about sounds about right, especially since this is probably a season one order. Sandman, the stories. I can't imagine they end with spoilers. Death of Morpheus at the end of this. I do think that it's going to be kind of the volume one of Sandman with Morpheus coming, collecting his re- reconstituting his powers. Yeah, that would move too fast. Exploring yeah. the world. But it's already been stated. Neil has already said that it's going to be set in modern day, so it's not set in the eighties uh. when Sandman was set. So not a period piece set thirty years later, but it's going to be still Morpheus the Sandman story. It's just I, th- I think Sandman is everlasting. I think I think Sandman it can does work. not necessarily need to be in the eighties, even though the aesthetic style of that Kelly Jones art was so much in. In that kind of like thin, thin man. As long as they don't change like the nature of like the the actual interactions between characters, and like and I you're can't remember get him going through time. You're gonna yeah. get. I mean, Good Omens was such a perfect example of this. There's a episode in Good Omens that's not in the book, and it's the most Sandman thing ever. I don't know if you've seen the series, but it's the two angels like and their relationship through time. That is a freaking Sandman yeah. story, right? Sandman. There's a the great uh, this great. Um, uh, bet he does with a sister death about you know what happens if he takes death away from one man and lets him live forever and becomes Sandman's friend they kind of meet together every every hundred years like that is so Neil Gaiman and I and so even though it's not set in the 80s you're gonna get Midsummer Night's Dream you're gonna get the Shakespeare stuff you're gonna get him in the trench coat today mm-hmm. um, you're gonna get the brothers and sisters the siblings right and who's gonna play death that's the big question. Oh, the casting of this is oh. going to be so all over the place. Yeah, yeah. You're going to have to work overtime to get the Norm's perfect casting machine going. I know. Already, gears are already trying. I know a lot of people, I, I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I thought would have could have been a really cool Morpheus. Hmm. They're not going to get Keanu Reeves, even though. No, he's too old now, isn't he? Is he, though? <laughs> Will he ever be? Why don't we just cast Robert Pattinson and make people mad? <laughs> uh uh, some people have speculated for uh, for death, um, Kristen Ritter. Oh, yeah. She showed a lot of range when she shifted over to Jessica Jones from who I'd knew, known her to be. You know, Ellen Page is already tied in with the Umbrella Academy, but I could have also seen her do death. 
I got to think about this. But we're going to move on to our next bit of Neil Gaiman news. And that is, this is a little more obscure, but for comic book fans, something that was uh, very cool. It's not happening, but Neil Gaiman said that he had pitched to Marvel, Marvel TV, the idea of doing a 1602 series. Now, what is 1602? Well, it was a miniseries that was one of these big events in Marvel Comics about 10, maybe more than 10 years ago now. But it was the Marvel Universe, but almost like an Elseworlds, DC Elseworlds story, but set in the year 1602 in the New World, set in America, where you had familiar characters like Doctor Strange and Iron Man and the Hulk, but kind of in this almost outlander era world it was like very elizabethan elizabethan totally totally and the big twist was that it was actually canon i will spoil how so it kind of like what struck me as interesting is you can imagine like wolverine in that time and like it totally yeah mutants in that time yeah totally rings and so uh i don't know if they're that feels like if you're if we're actually Doing this, this feels like the jumping the shark moment for this Marvel is, television. This is better as a if Marvel did like what DC does with their animated films, right? This would be a great animated movie. Yes, special two part special. I agree with that. Uh, and also, it's the kind of thing where the twist does not work because it only works because the characters are done with artist interpretation. You know what I mean, mm-hmm. right? Once you put actors in there. The, the the story plot points are kind of given away, yeah. But a really cool idea and one of those things that like was was totally like Neil Gaiman diving mm-hmm. into superhero comics in his own way, yeah. Uh, speaking of other highly anticipated TV shows, we got some Picard news. Yes, give it to me, feed it to my veins. That so, trailer is the best trailer <laughs> I saw all year. Picard's gonna have a big panel at Comic Con this year. All of CBS All Access with the Discovery stuff and the Picard stuff. Uh, but Michael Shabon apparently is running the show. Yeah, and so this is not a huge departure in the sense that he was already working on the writing team for it. Yeah. And apparently this was a promote from within kind of situation where he's crafted a lot of the direction that's really hit home that's, uh, and some of the writing that's taken over. So this was sort of a natural progression as it's been reported. Awesome. It. The other thing that makes this really awesome is that they're really thinking, it sounds like they're thinking of this uh, as a one complete story, uh, and, and 10 chapters in a complete story. This is a book. And, uh, awesome. It, this is like the fan fiction. You know, when you, when I used to buy those 400-page Star Trek books about what life would be like after TNG, like this is that, but put on screen. I mean, what's going to be hard about this is there's got to be like a Picard suffering kind of element to oh, this. I think it starts off with the suffering. Yeah, the whole I'm, idea, the I'm whole sure. The so I think that's what's the... going to be hard for the fans. You just have to start preparing yourself because that's also what uh, Michael writes well is that kind of arc. So just be prepared. Yeah, highly serialized. It's not going to be lesson of the week, uh, villain of the week, alien of the week type thing. It's going to be one man's journey. And revisiting this character. And, you know, they've said they're open, if this does well, to, to maybe not having it be the end. Mm. Well, I, I'm, happy if it's, I'm happy if it's the end. I, I mean, it's it, just like it's, Patrick Stewart's old. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he also doesn't really age. I mean, he, he, he's vibrant. Uh, last bits before we move on, because we, we have gone pretty long. Stranger Things, of course, debuts this week. I, it's probably by the time you listen to this, it will, be, uh, it will have aired. Uh, reviews have been great. So 
I'm very excited to watch Stranger Things. And then a last bit of, it's a little bit of an announcement. We talked about this on Still Untitled, but Adam announced a project, Project Egress. Uh, we have a lot of science talks, so we'll put this in pop culture. But Adam is going to be at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum uh, the week of Comic-Con, the week of July 16th. And on the 18th, I believe that's a Friday, Friday the 18th, he, along with Jen Schachter and even some familiar tested faces, will be at the National Air and Space Museum assembling their replica of the uh, the Apollo 11 command module hatch. Uh I've seen bits and pieces uh, of some of the work that's been put in. You know, Ryan Agata, Sean, and, and Kate, they've all contributed pieces. Microsoft Harvard Lab is doing a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of the shell and the display. It, it's going to look so cool. For anyone that's seen the Apollo 11 capsule, you'll note how much texture and richness that hatch has. It had u- a lot of utility on it, but it is, it is like a mess. Uh, uh, like when you look at it in mass. So I'm kind of, I'm really excited to see how they kind of fit all of this together. And this goes right to Jen Schachter's strength. Like she helped design uh, at the first NomCon, like them building this whole like collaborative piece um, from different maker spaces around the country. So this is right in her wheelhouse. I can't wait to see what she creates with it. Awesome. All right. That does it for... All right, we have we do have some tech. End up not being a heavy tech news, but uh, some uh, here's some computer vision stuff. Two computer vision stories to kick things off. Google Lens, use Google Lens. Word lens when they kind of kind of built. Into I their mostly app. use it for the translate feature. Yeah, especially when I go to restaurants that don't have that have some uh, you know uh, different languages on them. I feel like both Apple and Google are taking these interesting like soft paths to to AR. Right, neither have glasses yet. We don't count Google glasses as AR, uh, but kind of hedging their bets. Like, is AR going to be holding? a phone out to the world like this, or it's going to be something wearable. Well, if it ends up being wearable, the, the holding the phone out to this or the camera facing the world is a crucial part of that. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's ARKit, there's ARCore. But on the Google side, you have those, you've had that kind of AR functionality be in practical use with Maps and with Google Lens in translating. And now Google Lens has another feature. It's actually only in San Francisco, but taking the knowledge graph of the things, not just keywords, but also visual data, and recognizing things like artwork and street art and, and in the city and giving you that contextual info. So as you're walking through the streets, lifting your phone up for whatever purpose of navigation, you can also get some interesting information about art. I love this idea as in the context of a museum. I can't wait for a museum to do this. like Because you think about something that has been stale for a long time. It's the audio tours at Art galleries. Well, well, well. Minus the Louvre when you can have a Nintendo DS. Oh, come on. Well, (laughs) I mean, like, that's the Louvre, first of all. But, like, I think that's ripe for some some additional information and overlays. And oftentimes you're seeing stuff where it's like, look at this corner of of this sculpture or whatever. You might as well have the overlay for it. 
and still be able to appreciate what's happening. I can't wait for more features like this to come out. Yeah. And on the Apple side, this is a piece of computer vision that's not world-facing. This is one of my, you know, things that annoy me. I'm going to do a a tangential things that annoy me because this is front-facing camera. Yes, I get that. Rear-facing camera, no. There's no such... Why do you call it a rear-facing camera? So what do you want to call it? It's a world-facing camera. World-facing camera. That's weird, too. That's very... Front-facing camera because it faces not the front of the phone. It faces your front. front. You, the user's front. Rear-facing camera makes it sound like you're pointed butts. No. No, that is not what I think about at all. But that's what it sounds like, the rear-facing camera. Now, I understand it's on the rear face of the phone, so it's not the rear-facing camera. It's You can call it the rear-face camera. So your problem with the the hyphen or the rear? The the rear the hyphen the rear facing camera which well first of all people type it don't even use the hyphen because grammar on the internet that's a whole other thing but technically it's the world facing camera or the rear camera I accept rear camera because then you're talking about the rear of the phone the back of the phone or the world facing camera rear facing camera not acceptable. I, I'm not going to agree with you on this one because you have three different complaints all all kind of coalesced. They, and one. they're all valid. They're all valid. Re- let's let's stop saying rear-facing camera. You can say rear camera or world. I'll say world-facing camera because you have your front-facing camera and the world-facing camera. I would argue just for camera because you're already calling the other one the front-facing camera. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm happy with that. Happy with camera as well happy with that. Well, this piece of computer vision news, if you want to bounce back up, is more about the front-facing camera. And this is this is kind of a, a, a feature that if no one reported on it, I think people would just have accepted. But now it might become a thing. So iOS 13 is in beta, and it's coming out uh, in, in a couple months or so, or a couple, yeah, later, later this summer. But now FaceTime on iOS 13, FaceTime on your phone has on the, on the new phones at least on the 10 or 10s they have they have um the uh the uh, the ir dot array right it can mm-hmm. do mapping of your face and also eye contact it needs the eye contact actually to when you look at that camera for it to um for it to activate it's actually just bouncing ir light right into the back of your retinas and when it gets that reflection that's how you know it's looking you're looking at it it's actually a quite simple piece of technology using the fact that you know light bounces right to the back of your uh, your eyes, your your visual cortex, and back out. Um, but the problem is that when most people use FaceTime, when they're using video conferencing, they're not looking at the camera. I've do- I've noticed this myself. I actually, when I like do a Skype call on my laptop, mm-hmm. one, I don't like. It's weird to look at people's faces on a computer and just stare at them because you don't really. It's not the same as looking at someone in person. So I actually look at the camera intentionally, like the camera on my laptop. And kind of off my peripheral, I can still see when the person's talking and not talking, but I just train my brain to look at the camera. Especially when I'm doing a video podcast with someone over Skype, I never look at the the Skype window. I look at the camera. Okay. It's 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 a personal quirk. This is just something I do. But I won't have to do that on FaceTime anymore because with iOS 13, Apple will build in 
auto gaze correction. So it's going to like somehow shift the It's going to manipulate like the... the video to shift your eyes to look up. Oh, into, that's so creepy. Into the actual camera as opposed to into the video screen. And do it just seamlessly. Just have it in the I, background. I so want to see a, a demo of this. There, there, are some, if you, uh, there are some screenshots of the camera app. And even that subtle th- shifting of the eyes, I, I, I think it looks like it, you know, it, it, the resolution of, of FaceTime isn't always the best anyway with the, the bit rates and, the, and uh, the, the pixelization. But it looks convincing and it kind of takes that little dead-eyed look away. Huh. Yeah. And this is like the, this is like some subtle computer vision that's just built in. And I, I go back to what I was saying at the beginning. If this was something that was not announced and wasn't something that was reported on, I don't think people would have noticed. I think they would just have, it subconsciously felt like their voice video calls were yeah, I don't more think you would have noticed. Yeah. But the fact that it's pointed out, now, I won't be able to unsee it. Oh my god, this is so weird. And it makes me think, what other weird computer vision things can they do or already have done in the background to make the human computer interaction experience more seamless? I'm just surprised they have the processing power to make this kind of shift be seamless in a situation that's already kind of a limited framework. Oh, because uh, you're you're dealing with video already. I, I think that this is where when we talk about diminishing returns on uh, the hardware from years ago with the iPhone, you know, probably starting with the iPhone 6, 6 to 7, all that extra processing power that they've built into their, their A-series chips, and they're vastly overpowered for what you need for basic functionality on a smartphone. This is where it's this going. This is where it's going. My fear, though, is that it's activating the IR camera array nonstop. That actually, like if, you, if anyone's tried to do portrait mode on their phone on like an iPhone 10, I'm not sure about the, the 10S, mm-hmm. but on iPhone 10, if you activate portrait mode, it's, had running your phone will heat up because that actually that does as it should it, like that should it, take it's a lot power. of computational power extra so I wonder mm-hmm. if you'll be able to toggle this off or if there's something in their visual processing that just can happen at a lower level that does not well, need that would be an interesting comparison to the battery usage rate on normal FaceTime, on FaceTime versus this and you know what this is exactly the kind of functionality that when you talk about planned obsolescence it's not so much that they design the phones to die after two years of use or be obsolete, but they push these features that do require the computation, that do require that for the most, that to, to, for you to maximize that, that do require you to have the new phone with the extra processing power. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I say require, you know, need, you know, you know capital N need, but like in order to, to, when these iOS 13 updates come, you're kind of forced into using them. So I, I'm curious if there will be a toggle or not, but that, that's an interesting interesting bit of computer vision mm-hmm. yeah I, I and i if it's a feature that they can do seamlessly where else can they do this the seamlessly the part is the critical one yeah yeah uh two bits of android news to move on um this one a little bit of windows news windows 10 the next update coming out uh next week i think will allow finally for android notifications to pop up in your notifications bar uh, so if you're an android user and a windows 10 user just do you use notifications Apple, on your windows I, 10 hate notifications yeah i hate it on my windows 10 too so yeah Yeah. like this makes me angrier yeah it's it's useful for letting me know when 
something has finished. Something is finished syncing. Uh, uh, that's like it. Like updating yeah. or installing or a process is finished. Yeah, but it's that's t- it. It's so full of junk, and it's not easy to, to parse out and yeah. filter the junk. I don't need to know when people's birthdays are. Yeah, I have all, like Slack defaults all of its notifications yeah. in there as well. And like, yeah, I'm not thrilled about this. Mm, mm. But the next one, Norm, it's fixed. Galaxy. Oh, Galaxy we've done 10? it. We've done it. Or the fold. The Galaxy Fold. Oh, Galaxy is Fold fixed. <laughs> they have found a way to take that film on the screen. If you remember, there's a lot of problems with the review units where. Uh, People that were testing it would literally try to peel this film off the screen because it looked like that film that is just on this protective film that's on a screen. The most satisfying part of getting a new uh, piece of glass. Yeah. And then the phone would stop working. Well, they fixed it by... Hiding the edge of the film? Making the process so the film goes all the way to the edge of the bezel. Now, does it recede into the bezel? They say it does so that it would be nearly impossible to see this film and want to pick it off mm. so all this tells me is that they really haven't fixed they it. haven't f- <laughs> they've extended the edge of the film yeah they just made so you won't film. peel it yeah yeah i still yeah there's so I, I have questions this also doesn't address all the problems we've we uh that came up with some of those review units it's only this one with the film that was the most common hey they had booked to sell hundreds of thousands of these and I don't think they will, these, the Galaxy Folds. Yeah. Well, they're, they're making displays as well, so. Oh, mm. I skipped the uh, other story. Sorry. Yes. Samsung. Other Samsung news. August 7th, it looks like it will be the new Galaxy event. Uh, this is the Note 10 launch, presumably. So it's going to be in, uh, in, in New York, in Brooklyn. And uh, if you've been waiting for the next Galaxy Note, you know, the, the, every, that has every, a loyal Base. It, it totally does. Annoying. It totally does. No. And, and every time they move past the debacle of the the exploding note, you know, every year that they have a successful note release is 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 better for them. Uh, but it's you know, the credit to Samsung to to make have two flagships to have basically two big phone launches every year uh, for two different segments and and build a market out of that. Because even Apple doesn't do that. They have multiple size iPhones, but it's not. It's it's all just iPhone. Good for, good for them. We should mention the Tesla one before we get to the last story. Okay. Tesla shipped a lot of cars, more yeah. than ever before. Yeah, you know, it's. I, I wonder how, because the reports before this, Tesla shipped uh, 95,000 cars, which is uh, the largest they've shipped in, in the uh, quarter. Uh, but the reports leading up to their announcement was you know, they weren't going to make this. And then you had the leaked emails of um, Elon Musk sending notes to Tesla employees about needing to, to hustle to make this. Like, is that going to be the case every quarter where they're barely? This isn't. I mean, it is a very impressive number, but it, clearly there's room for efficiencies in their either the supply chain or in the in the uh, the manufacturing line. Um, and you know, investors rewarded them because they didn't miss their their targets. Uh, and is a ton of cars, but at some point, uh, I worry and I, I worry about the quality control. I think that's fair. Um... The we live in a bubble. Q commenters commenting on our bubble, but there are so many Teslas on the road here. Oh God! That yeah. it actually feels saturation is what we're hitting uh, in terms of local owners here in the in the Bay Area, 
And so they're probably, I mean, isn't that part of the natural life cycle of, of these cars that we're going to start to see more issues kind of emerge with the manufacturing process and quality control? I mean, that happens with pretty much every car. We've had very few recalls on the Tesla lines uh, compared to to other car manufacturers. Uh, somebody can check the math on that, but... Uh, it's bound to happen. I, I don't think demand has fallen off. I think their challenge will be fulfillment. I think the one of the biggest challenges for them, because, like you said, uh, them making these Model 3s in Fremont, which is the, the vast majority of these cars being shipped off, uh, saturating the Bay Area, it was, you know, they were very fortunate that it turns out there's a lot of people in the Bay Area who could afford these cars and we've been waiting a long time. And so the first couple quarters, the first year of its release, really, you know, they could ramp up and, and deliver. Um, but the actual, like, rigs it takes the, and, and the, the, uh, the delivery chain, right, that operations problem is not easy, let alone overseas, but just in the Midwest, yeah. Right? Like getting these cars out to places that now it's like a two to three week wait for people ordering these cars before they can yeah. get them. Supply chain is definitely an issue. I think if we keep seeing gas prices um, fluctuate, they're off their highs now. But, you know, only a month or two ago, we were here in the Bay Area, like above $4 a gallon. Yeah. You're going to see that demand, I think, maintain. Yeah. 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 But also competition is going to go up. Now, of course, regardless, you know, there's brand recognition and there's... Uh, I think the competition's l- lagging still. It would just feel like, from a marketing perspective, because especially since tes- or Tesla does not do any, any marketing, active marketing, it'll feel like there's more electric car saturation. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of people shopping for cars, they might feel more comfortable because they have dealerships close by, because they can get a Toyota or a, you know even an Audi, right? Then they can get service, and that infrastructure outside of the Bay Area is not as robust for Tesla. Look, I've seen more suggested ads for a fake Truckla commercial than I have for <laughs> any competitor. Have you seen these renders? Vehicle? These renders for the the Tesla uh, SUV or not SUV? The, um, the pickup, the, the pickup truck, the fan renders. They, I'm sorry, they all like garbage and i'm sure the true design whatever they end up will be even more wacky but yeah i did i don't think we can be are prepared right now for what that car is going to look like and i don't think the market is prepared um, and i don't know if the market will respond mm-hmm. all right last bit of tech news so it's kind of a it's a weird piece of tech but we're going to talk about it anyway but uh twitch so big news happening in twitch uh they had banned one of their top streamers, uh, Dr. Disrespect, after an incident at E3 where he live streamed from, violated their policies by live streaming from a bathroom, uh, was banned from the service and then kind of unceremoniously just kind of let back in. Mm-hmm. He was reinstated. I think it's going to amount to, it was amounted to like a two and a half week ban and then hasn't restarted his channel yet, but has indicated it will come back up early this month. And it's kind of been dividing the Twitch streaming community, like it, it puts their guidelines in kind of a gray area, and this is kind of a, you know, it's it's a symptom of what a lot of platforms, streaming or VOD or otherwise, have to go through right now because a lot of their most popular content partners, creator partners, are sometimes the most controversial. Maybe because they're the most 
controversial. And it seems like none of these platforms want to to give in. Now, there's definitely a line between, you know, censorship and, and free speech. And but there's also uh, just guidelines that should be enforced or should be made more clear about this stuff. Uh, and also there's a, a question of what constitutes sufficient punishment. I have like a slightly different take. I think what this does is it exposes the incestuous relationship that these personalities have with the platform they're on. Everyone's incentive is for the personality to continue on the platform from because, the platform's perspective. Because the platform makes money, yeah. the personality yeah. makes money, the fan base of the personality gets the content they want. They like all of that is lined up. But there's a cadence to all of these things that lead us back to the same position we started in. It feels like an Ouroboros. Like we start with the personality does something in violation, gets on, gives a apology that has some heartfelt component. We see this on YouTube more often where it's like the kind of fake cry, like they all have the same mute mood music throughout personality, like tries to emote, say they're, really learned they've listened to everyone they're gonna change you see some politicians all the time uh, oh yeah i don't want to make this sound like this is a new thing these non-apologies have happened throughout our history non-apology happens uh you know most people tend to accept the apology because i think humans are a forgiving bunch well, it's just our nature no, no, no. humans are a forgetful bunch well that comes next but i think we want to forgive i think we want to believe in the best of people uh, which is great. I think that's an awesome thing. Then personality goes back to doing what the personality was doing to make money. And oftentimes in a competitive industry, that means probably doing stuff to stand out more and be more outrageous. That's their incentive. And all of a sudden they violate another policy and we're back to where we started. Platform has done nothing. Personality has done the same stuff. No one has any reason to change. And it's boring on some level. That's what this is. Yeah, and, and on some level, it's also an economics question, right? It's like the reasons they do this is to make money. Mm-hmm. And the reasons they're successful making money is because the, the, the algorithms that promote them look at engagement and look at view time indiscriminately, right? They, they, the watch time for YouTube as a metric is just... If you're watching for X number of time for whatever reason, whether it's because you're watching kittens or whether it's because someone is ranting, that's equated the same. You will get promoted and that will get you not necessarily the, 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 the money, but that'll get you the audience and that'll get you the audience that you can use then to make money in all sorts of ways. And so YouTube really doesn't have and, and Twitch really doesn't have they don't have control. Right. Like who is that? Who's mercy here? I almost kind of want the platforms, Twitch, YouTube, whatever platform, come out and just say it. Like uh, some honesty would be refreshing. Be like, we have no incentive to ban this person. I mean, they will never say that. With, I mean, never say that. Tw- let's not even talk about Twitch. Twitter has basically Twitter said has they said have that zero incentive to ban anyone, and yet they do in the smallest of times, uh, the most extreme of times, but. Twitter is ex- exactly a type of service where, you know, the, in, in the name of free speech or in the name of whatever, uh, they will not enforce 
policies. Unless there's a real economic penalty, either to the personality or to the platform, things won't change. The like, I think maybe the uh, Logan Paul one is the only one where I felt like there was an economic penalty being weighed on the personality uh, when he did that stupid Japanese forest thing. And and, and that's again, because he was losing subscriber count and like partnerships were being pulled. All of a sudden he's learned, right? Like yeah. if you don't want Dr. Disrespect to do this stuff, his viewer numbers have to go down. But then it spouts right, right back up. Which is right. With, with the right. apology. It's it, it's the, the cadence of it. It's kind of built in, like you said, built into the formula. I find it boring. I actually thought he might not just, he just might not apologize at all. He did probably, if he didn't, I don't think people, I mean, I, I think would, the reaction would be exactly the same. Yeah. I think it, it, we have, we've iterated nowhere. Yeah. Garbage times. Garbage people. I'm sorry. All right. Sorry to end on that kind of sour note, but let's let's have a really fun moment of science. Now it's time for a moment of science. All right, moment of science meets pop culture. The trailer for Current War dropped. This looks awesome. Wait, wait, wait! Really? You don't think it looks good? I haven't, actually haven't seen the trailer. Okay. I, I kind of brushed this film off because it was made like three or four years ago. Is it really that old? It's, it was made uh, it was, it was, it was made in shelf because of the Weinstein. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So The Current War is a movie starring Benedict Cumberbatch. As Thomas Edison. Uh, Michael, Michael Shannon. Shannon as as uh, George Westinghouse. Westinghouse. That's right. Um, Nicholas East. Holt. Yep. As Tesla, <laughs> Tom does he have a mustache? Uh, yes. Uh, no, no, come on, Bowie. Uh, Bowie kind of ended the role for everyone. No, I think Tesla. Okay, okay. <laughs> I think Tesla's a big enough figure uh, to persist. Uh, Tom Holland's in this movie as well. Okay. So it has a star-studded cast, uh, and it details the the history of the battle uh, over electricity between um, Edison and Tesla which is really more of a battle between the backers of Edison and George Westinghouse, who is the real backer of Tesla. Mm. I know like a lot of the history behind this. It is a fascinating tale that is not about science at all. Like there's a bit of science in there in the argument over what's better, but it's really an argument of showmanship Mm. because Edison and Tesla used to have these public demonstrations of their, of their work, you know, very, Electrocuting animals, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and like bizarre things, like you're like you're suggesting with the uh, electrocutions and whatnot. And then they would lie about each other, mostly Edison lying about Smear Tesla. Campaign. Sure, and that stuff is fascinating. It is kind of emblematic of some of the discussion we have now in fake news and science. Fa- yeah, and between like science and like pseudoscience and stuff. And I think it's going to be a fascinating watch from that perspective. This is, I have not seen the film. Now, now, source the, material is great. The, the source material is absolutely great. There are wonderful documentaries about it. And I think this is probably a story better told than, as in the Ken Burns documentary where the research is done and less, less no, pace for the, drama. I mean, the drama is built in, you, like you said. I don't think I need the, the dramatic portrayals. I saw that in The Prestige. 
like the the kind of but I, I want to see the demonstrations. I want to see like the theatrics like be transported that moment. That's always what's been missing from the documentaries. And then and to, to your point about the, going back to the science of this and how this relates to the the modern times of of the 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 fake news and the distrust in science. I think it's completely different because back then the technologies that we're working with were kind of in the realm of magic for people, right? It went to a place. It wasn't that they didn't believe science because of the the rigors of it and because of, but because it was something really people hadn't seen before. Mm-hmm. And Vaccines are magic too, Norm. No, 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 they're not. <laughs> I, I, I watched the trailer. I, I, if they, if they kind of like temper it and not make it too sensational, this could be an awesome, awesome movie. I take it as a good sign that they're releasing it at Thanksgiving. That's usually a time when good movies come out. Uh, you know, I wish it was probably a month later because that would mean they're really putting some Oscar potential behind it. But yeah, this was shelved for unfortunate reasons. And and the movie poster that was released for it was uh, uninspiring. I'll say, say given the source material, yeah, it was just uninspiring in general from a design perspective. And if you learn anything from this movie, I hope you learn that Edison is a real jerk. Oh, come on, just the worst. Our listeners, I would hope, would know that Edison's a real jerk. Worst, yeah. All right, all right. Let's get. Let's take. uh, Let's go from the past into the future. We're going to talk about robotic fish because that's clearly important future. There's a great story by Matt Simon that came out in Wired. Uh, about a new study that emerged where they tried to take the idea of powering a robotic creature, but powering it in a different way. Usually when we talk about power, we talk about energy density of an object. So we'll we'll take a big-ass lit- lithium-ion battery, shove it in there, and balance like, sort of the weight-to-power ratio in order to, to generate movement. Well, this group took a different approach, is what if we have a decentralized battery structure? And so they had anodes kind of spread out throughout this sort of plastic fish, and they used hydraulic technology to power its motion. Mm. So hydraulics typically is pretty simple in the, in the context of you're using the power of a fluid to impart a force. And you can impart incredible forces. Anyone that's watching BattleBots has probably seen this on display. There's some hydraulic lifters, um, uh, uh, robots that are just doing an exceptional amount of damage. However, what they did is instead of taking a traditional hydraulic fluid, they've actually created a ionized form of the hydraulic fluid that's capable of transmitting uh, power. It, it has ions in it. So when it hits the cathode electrode, it's able to deliver not the same energy density as a lithium-ion battery, but a small amount of, of energy as well, which can power the pumps that move the hydraulic fluid around. So this has distributed energy, and they made a robotic fish that can swim using this technology. And it has, the problems are, that it has 10 to 15 times as less energy density than a lithium-ion battery. And so if there's a point of failure, there's no fixing the fish. It's just dead. But essentially, they're powering this object by fluid. I just think we haven't seen a design like that in a long time. Um, there's a great video of the robot fish swimming around. It cannot swim very fast. It can swim the length of a human in about a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So it'll probably get eaten in the wild, but whatever. I loved it. Did you watch the most important moment yesterday? 
surpassing the U.S. women beating England in the World Cup. I am aware of it. I did not watch it. I was not in Chile. I watched the live stream. There was a total solar eclipse wow. that passed over Chile last week, or uh, on Tuesday, I should say. Uh, and this was interesting because it was for two reasons. From a science perspective, this uh, the best viewing spots for this eclipse were at elevated regions. So there was a lot of regions that were at like seven, 8,000 feet. If you watch the Exploratorium or NASA live feeds, those telescopes were mounted at, at, at that height. Um, also, the solar activity during this time was much more minimal than what we've seen in, in years past. So the 2017 eclipse, which passed over North America, had a much higher solar activity. So all of a sudden, with a decreased solar activity, a higher elevation, so we're technically closer to space, we're able to see the corona of the sun a lot better, which is oftentimes what's you what's studied during the eclipse because all of a sudden we have shade over most of the sun. We can see the outer region, which is something like 10, it can be one to 10 million degrees. It's the hottest part of the sun, kind of, you know, uh, against you, what you would ex expect because it's the outer layer of the sun. Well, this is probably going to be the last time we use an eclipse to study this because there are so many instruments pointed at it that they think the data generated from it will be able to tell us enough about the sun's corona that we won't have to use further eclipses uh, to oh, wow. study things like the, the corona. So there should be data coming out in the next, I don't know, uh, three to six months. They're going to tell us more about the magnetic activity that sources um, some of the coronal acti uh, activity on the sun that I think is going to be absolutely fascinating. There's great time lapses. There's great educational materials about the eclipse. The next solar eclipse that hits the North American continent is in 2024. Oh. And it goes over a lot of cities Okay, on the East Coast. And so uh, book your Road tickets trip. now. Yeah. I have never seen a, a full. Have you? I, I never have been. I didn't go to Portland. People that talk about it almost talk about it as if it's a religious, religious experience, yeah. Yeah. Oh, right? Yeah. I mean, like, you see these photos and it's and even the videos and like the landscape is transformed. And I, I think it's more it, it, when you're in a group of people, when you're when you're in like an empty field and you have like thousands of people gathering for this, it has that same energy, right? As this big ritual. I, the thing I always wanted to see, and I think that was special about this Chilean e eclipse because it happened around four o'clock local time. Mm. And it's on, you know, in the southern hemisphere. It was actually close to sunset. Yeah. And what you get at a total eclipse is you get a 360-degree sunset happening all at once because of the blockage of the sun. And because the sun was low in the sky, apparently the sunset was spectacular. I saw a 360 view. I, like, I actually was what in VR, and they had a VR rig where you could see it. It looked amazing, but there's something different about being there, I'm yeah. sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then it being that low allow for some of the photos you could see like the sun it's people are looking like tilting their heads straight up you're basically right above the horizon and you have this amazing that's what makes it look surreal you have like this it's like the golden hour and then you know it's it's, it's completely close i gotta up. say i still don't totally get it i've heard so many descriptions well we'll make plans for 2024 yeah the baby will be uh, a couple oh the baby will be like Four or five, maybe you can go on the trip. Yeah, okay, all right, making plans already. Why will we? Will I see a solar eclipse before I go to Galaxy's Edge? Probably, maybe. <laughs> it'll be close. It'll, it'll be, be close. close. It'll be close. We're coming up on one of the most important anniversaries of of our lifetime. 
I, I would say like this is the scientific feat I wish I was alive for, for the Apollo 11 landing. And being weeks away, we're seeing all sorts of stories. Probably too many stories <laughs> come out. You're going to be flooded with them. My favorite one, and, and Norm saw this too, is, the, is what's happened at jo- Johnson Space Center. Yeah, they've restored the Mission Control Center, uh, the original one, because the new ones were revamped, very high tech, but the old one, the space is still there. The computers are still there. And now it's a little bit of a museum. I've been in that room. I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've visited it. It, it. it feels awesome. Like you watch, I, I think, because Apollo 11, there's a lot of documentaries, but it ha- the... The fictional, like the, uh, the the biopics, even even in uh, um, uh, First Man, you didn't see too much of MCC. Uh, so Apollo 13 was probably yep. where you saw it the most. And that's where being in the room felt like the most connection to me. It was like, wow, this is, this is like you, the most when, MCC for Apollo 13. Awesome yeah. as you saw Ed Harris play this guy, Gene Kranz, famous for wearing vests yep. all the time in Apollo 13. He was... One of the leaders for all of the Apollo missions. He was in the uh, MCC uh, for almost every single one. I think he was, he might not have been there for one of them. Um, Somebody will correct me on that. But the best part about that, about that restoration is they had Gene Krantz come by a couple days ago. And Gene in his vest, in his (laughs) older age, like you'd still see, like he looks like Gene Krantz. Um, Gene Krantz is like sitting in like the chair he sat in. Oh my uh, gosh. uh, and like, there's going to be so many moments like that over the next couple of weeks. And this is probably going to be the last time for a lot of this kind of stuff. Uh, it, you know, a lot of the people involved probably aren't going to make it to the 75th anniversary. I think you even have an off world coming up. Well, that we do Ooh, a little bit of promo, uh, this Sunday, uh, Nat Geo is putting out a documentary, um, about the, uh, the moon landing. And, uh, about the entire Apollo program in general, um, and the footage they use, the perspective from the documentary is more about the uh, the media, the media covering it, which I'm always fascinated by the kind of the, the ephemera of like how people were <laughs> reporting on it and perceiving it. And we had uh, Poppy Northcutt, um, the first woman who uh, worked in MCC for these launches, uh, on the podcast. So that's going to come out this Sunday as well. Uh, the episode of Offworld. It's like. You could imagine being here at Tested, like the FOMO rises up, like when Adam has like guests come in and all these like celebrities have come by and, uh, you know, I'll get jealous from time to time. I have not been more jealous of not meeting somebody like at Tested she was awesome. than hearing about Poppy Northcutt coming by. Yeah. I almost blew my lid. It she was awesome. She me on Twitter now. Oh, she's actually pretty delightful on Twitter. She's oh, yeah. kind of sassy. Yeah, I love <laughs> I it. Love it. Yep. Love it, love it. All right, last bit of a little bit of science discussion. I wanted you to be on the podcast last week talking about this and uh, didn't have the opportunity, so I'm going to bring it up now. So Hugh Howey, uh, for those of you who read science fiction, he wrote the uh, the Wool series of books in Sand. And um, he is, you know, like like a lot of science fiction authors, whether it's, you know, Kim Stanley Robinson or Andy Weir, uh, you know, very forward-thinking about what is humanity's role in space exploration, how can it actually work? And, and tons of research is done. Well, he he posted this big Twitter thread um, about his thoughts on just the impractic 
practicality and just the uh, just from a not just from a technological perspective, but from a human biological perspective and and of going to space in general, of, of colonizing the moon and colonizing Mars. And in his firm belief, he just doesn't think it will happen. He thinks we'll get there, we'll get to Mars, and we'll, we have that push to get there and be the first there. Um, but once that happens, will we send people to Mars? Like this, this science fiction, this fantasy that we have about having colonies, about seeding the human race throughout the cosmos, is that is that something that we can imagine actually happening? Yeah, and his point isn't so much like, will we send somebody to Mars? I think like reading the thread, reading between the lines, I think he thinks we will because there is something that is explorer nature that we're going to send somebody there. We do it just but because. the right. persistence of staying there is a very different thing. Right. The motivations of doing it, it's built into our DNA. In our DNA, and evolution has kind of shaped our our urges for exploration to be explorers because it was a biological necessity, right? To, to spread the human race throughout the earth to, to, to survive. By the way, I don't, I mean, like I agree with that and it doesn't fully explain that. that. I don't There's think it fully explains it. unique about humanity and consciousness that probably yes, is a driver. Yes. And, and, the, and the curiosity more than just a survival mm -hmm. mechanism. Uh, but those forces that compel us to, be go on, go to the moon, you know. While after we've done it, does that necessarily equate to the next step of colonization? And the analogy he makes is that we have gone to places like Antarctica, and we don't really colonize those places at all because a place like Antarctica is far less hospitable than. It doesn't make sense to do it. You know, other places on Earth. And a place like the moon, let alone Mars, is a million times less hospitable than a place like Antarctica. Uh, the reasons we think we have to do it is overpopulation, but he argues that that's not going to be real concern. That's not going to be a driving force here. I mean, like, there has to be an economic argument for it, for it to really happen. I think almost every scholar has said, like, this doesn't happen based off of our curious nature. Mm. But it like the gut punch of this is thinking is when you start to reflect on 1969 to 2019. Yeah, 50 years. Yeah. And it like I know we've land like people have been to the moon since then, but not really. And like people we haven't gone back there not only be not because we couldn't, but I think the the gut punch is like we got bored of it. Like we did it. We conquered. Somebody climbed to the mount top of Mount Everest, and that's it. Well, be that, that's that's different. You know, you no. saw a John Oliver story. People climb Mount Everest all the time because they want their selfies there, right? But that's it. That's I think that's his point. Is people still want to make the trek for their adventure? Yeah, but not to stay, yeah. not to be there, not to live there, not to grow something new there. Yeah, unless the urgency, and that's why so much of the science fiction stories we hear of is the urgency of global extinction, the urgency mm -hmm. of catastrophe is what compels, you know, humanity to to really go for the stars. But that is a that is not a problem to solve in, you know, like like we see in these books, one year or five years. That is that's counteracts just the, the what's mm -hmm. needed to to develop the technology. I love how he holds up our boredom to our face in this thread. What I hate about this is that it doesn't acknowledge what happens when we dream big and all of the ways that 
life for everyone else improves when we dream that big. Like the race to get us out to space didn't just get us out to the moon. It changed life for everyone or for most everyone. And I have to think like getting to Mars is going to do the same thing. And I think like some of the, the I would say almost cynicism that is embedded in yeah. this in this thought of impracticality. Impracticality, if if we live through practical means, I think we live a boring life as a as a race. And I I'm, I'm sure Hugh would acknowledge something like that, but I think that's what is is missing from this. Well, and he also says, you know, he he doesn't think that we'll never get humans on other planets. Right, but like even the the people we've talked to can kind of realize that like the distant you know people don't realize how how far how big the galaxy really is and how hard it is to you know aside from right even even the idea of generation ships is kind of impractical the, the more the more practical thing is going to be sending robots sending ai and robots will be kind of what gets humanity's footprint into the stars and maybe those robots then carrying human DNA and carrying, you know, the, the seeds of humanity. It won't be Star Trek. It won't be no. Us it on won't, big ships it won't be flying around. Starship. But I hope it's just, it's not just all practical either, because there's something not thrilling about that. Like, and, and we've lost places to explore on this planet for the most part. I mean, there's places in the I ocean. I think there's so much. There's so much to explore generally, but I think there's a vastness out there that can capture our spirit and imagination that can get us to work together in ways that we couldn't before. And talking about it and just sending robots to those places while exceptional, I don't, it's just not oh, I ever going to be the same. I feel like I feel like at the scale in which unfathomable, you know, getting robots out there to self-replicate and getting robots out there not in the thousands, not in the millions, but in like the tens of millions of robots out there over like that's a scale that I think can bring awe and wonder uh, in, in, a, hmm. in a way that we can't fathom. I'm not sure scale does it for me. Um, okay. All right. Let's get to our last section and it will be relatively quick because Jeremy's not here, but let's talk some VR. The VR Minute. Virtual Reality. This week, so we're going to start off with uh, some Valve Valve talk. Valve Index launched last week, um, and uh, there was a launch party at Valve. So Valve had uh, had its uh, employees invited some uh, members of the community up to um, not their headquarters, but to the, actually the uh, the factory where they do some of the manufacturing in house of their lighthouses the assembly of the lighthouses in-house uh, for, for cost reasons, for all sorts of reasons. Um, but they did a launch there, and there's video of Gabe Newell doing uh, a, and, a talk. And, it, like, and not like secretive video. They no, were no, just no. like, yeah, get film. out of your phones, I mean, I whatever. I it feels very Valve. Like, you know, yeah. don't film whatever. You know, if, if, if they were afraid that something was going to come out, they wouldn't put the people there. Uh, but Gabe Newell talked about their plans, why Index is important to them, and... Uh, Kind of casually mentioned what uh, they they are working on. You know, obviously the next steps. They I think when I went up to to Valve to hear them talk about Index for the very first time, they completely acknowledged that this was a very specific direction they were going in for a very high end product. 
$100,000 product based on the technologies they thought were accessible and attainable now from a supply perspective, these panels, these optics. Um, and they were not going to do what Oculus was doing in terms of trying to reach a, a mainstream mass market at a lower price point. But uh, that they do acknowledge that that is something that's needed for VR. And Gabe Newell said that, you know, they're looking next steps for index, whatever index becomes, uh, they will be looking at ways to make it more affordable, the ways to make it more accessible, and even have explored ways to make it untethered. So I think that's exciting. Big, big drop. So big mic drop there. Uh, whatever that means. I don't think it's locally processed. I do think they're going to look more at wireless streaming technologies, kind of what has been done with uh, the Vive Wireless and TPCast. I do think high-end VR is what they're they're talking about, and they'll solve some of the, the, the rendering problems uh, and, and the bandwidth problems. Um, but because they're already pushing high resolution, higher refresh rates, it becomes an even tougher problem than yeah, you do. I mean, but there seems to be so much investment if you look at what, Stadia is doing around some of the latency issues that are happening that gives you hope that there's more. It's not just Valve looking at this. Like the industry as a whole is looking at, at this area. He really casually mentioned the untethered. He yeah, just super, like super, very super casually. Gabe way. It's not a promise that it's going to be a real product. And uh, there are obviously big technical hurdles for that to happen. But I, I mean, Oculus definitely seems like they're moving in a direction where it's going to be locally processed for their, their style of untethered, whatever Quest Quest 2 becomes. And I would love for Valve to take on the challenge of uh, desktop streaming for untethered. Because they, they have desktop streaming you yeah. know, f- throughout uh, for Steam, for iOS, for Steam Link and that stuff. Uh, that's still wired, but all the compression is still there. I have to say the one thing I was like mildly disappointed about, I was surprised to hear him say more affordable. I actually, do, I, I don't mind Valve being on a super high end. That may mean I don't own one of these things. But, I mean, it, it feels like if they're iterating so hard on the hardware in this way, maybe being expensive is not a bad thing. Yeah, um, and then the other thing that he mentioned is, in terms of other forward-looking technologies, is display and optics. Also casually mentioning, like, oh, display and optics are thing they're working on for something groundbreaking. And this is where I'm truly excited because chatting with valve engineers and hearing some of their talks you can find them on youtube some of the things that they it's not just fov it's the quality of the image right like the panels that they're talking about are still limited by the fact that these are either lcd or oled panels using very traditional um established uh display technologies uh that don't move into the hdr field don't move Mm -hmm. into the brightness and the that's needed to really convince you of uh, an image that is reality. Um, and I'm really just completely speculating, crossing my fingers here, that they are looking to, the thing that's going to really be like a, 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 another wow moment in VR is when we get HDR displays. Maybe not the, to the level of brightness that like mm-hmm. that we expect from the real world, but something that's just fundamentally different than the type of experiences we're getting. Because if I look at any light source in a VR game, it just looks like a sheet of paper. Yeah, It's I'm, a texture. Like, I'm and comparing I, and I, it, I want it to be blown out. I'm comparing it to the experience of when HDR first came out on televisions. And that wasn't like the seamless process. It was yeah. multiple iterations. So I would think that's probably what it's going to be for HDR in VR as well. Oh, and the fundamental problems that they have to solve in terms of how that brightness then also is reconciled with 
the lensing, right? Because mm-hmm. they're using Fresnel lenses and, and combination of lenses that, while diminish some of the, the God rays and some of the, the bloom effects, like the brighter you get and the higher contrast it is, like that's going to be tougher to avoid. So when, when Gabe says optics and display technologies, I'm assuming he means exploring ways for higher brightness HDR displays and also optics that can work with that because I would love to see those benefits. Uh, other news on the, the Valve side, uh, just uh, this week, Valve has also delivered on its promise to deliver uh, CAD files for the Valve Index. And these are not only high-resolution uh, CAD files, but also STL files. So you can 3D print um, your, uh, you can 3D print accessories, uh, even for the, the controllers, for larger hands, for the index controllers, as well as uh, things for the frunk the, the little hole in the front of the index. And what's cool about their CAD is they also include the models for the, the exclusion zones, the places that you should not design any physical uh, ob- obstructions to block the sensors, uh, the SteamVR Lighthouse sensors that are on the headset. So it's really cool to see what the viewing, actual viewing area and where those blind spots are and where you, you shouldn't, you can't block those. Um, I will also point out that the community has, 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 discovered that the Valve Index controllers do have a little bit of a faulty bug on the Knuckles controllers. Uh, it's not for everyone, but it is on my controller as well, my review unit, but the thumbstick on them, while you can depress the thumbstick, if you move it to the far left or the far right, you're unable to depress the thumbstick. Like it physically doesn't Physi- do? It does not physically, and that I don't know how to do with the way it's mechanically designed, the membrane underneath it, uh, but it is... It's not by design because some people can and a lot of people can't. So Valve hasn't formally issued a statement on it, but people are hoping for some type of RMA. Um, I think it goes to, you know, the fact that they have this controller that has both thumbstick and touchpad. And a lot of people just want the thumbstick. Um, And so the fact that it doesn't work perfectly, it doesn't have that perfect parity with a lot of the games that they've been maybe playing on on the Rift side, on the touch controllers, uh, has been slightly disappointing. Uh, speaking of the Rift stuff, big surprise. Uh, this past week, there was an update. Uh, version 1.39 for, of the software for Oculus dramatically improves the tracking on Rift S. I haven't done some formal A-B testing yet, uh, but for people who play uh, games like Pavlov and Onward and where you do definitely need to have these controllers very close to the inside-out tracking cameras on the Rift S, they've noticed a markedly improved tracking experience. I've seen a lot of users comment on this. So this isn't just a a couple. And this was promised by, you know, John Carmack promised that the updates were coming, but we didn't know to what degree. And it sounds like uh, they... Everyone's been pretty happy. I don't know if it's Mm going to completely replace the... uh, the three-camera setups for competition level. Um, And there's definitely no word about any type of hybrid tracking system, which seems to be like that would be a a great, you know, you have, if you have the USB ports and you have, you know, you have all that tracking technologies there, I don't know how much work would be to to combine those, but for people who want to avoid occlusion, avoid blind spots, uh, that would be the only way to completely do it. But very impressed by the fact that these updates um, and I'm, I'm also curious why these weren't out at launch because we're only a couple months out from launch. Like, you know, how far the software stack is behind on the hardware. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about games. Okay, games. Um, uh, Space Junkies, there's a big update, episode three, now available on Rift. Have you a, played it? I've played Space Junkies, haven't played the, the newest update. 
But this is a it's super fun. Space Junkies is like deathmatch in VR. Um, now you got bots um, and this new uh, chivalry mode, three v three mode, um, with uh, a new weapon, uh, bow and arrow. It's one of those games that I feel like if you had bigger saturation in terms of the player base, you would get a lot more mileage out of it. But right now, um, at least from my experience, I'm not a ton of people playing. And Ubisoft did put a lot of development effort in this. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a chicken and egg problem with multiplayer games and for, for VR in general. Uh, and Space is getting a port from the from Go yes, to Quest. For, yes. That's that's gonna be interesting. Uh, this is I have actually I never played never played in space. It, it was, I think it was well regarded on the the go. I never played it either. But it's a it, it's it's a cockpit game. Mm-hmm. So it's you know we want more of these kind of spaceship cockpit games. We just want more Quest. games on the Quest. Yeah. Like frankly, so yeah. any announcement is a good announcement. And it was an announcement from a developer. We don't actually have the date, but just that a confirmation that it's going to come out. Yeah. Um, and then uh, best. Oh, haha. <laughs> Uh, the one game at from at E3 I didn't get to play that I really wanted to play was from End Dreams, and that's Phantom Covert Ops. And I think it just won for uh, Game Critics Award Best VR AR Game um, from E3. I've been waiting for more stealth games in VR. I this feel is, like this, this is a missing is, genre. This is not only a stealth game, but it's a stealth game in which it's an uh, interesting movement mechanic. It's the kayaking game. So you're supposed to be mm-hmm. you know, kayaking under spotlights and stuff. It's, you know, it's very Metal Gear inspired. and. Uh, I, I really, I really want to play it. Uh, uh, I think that's basically it for for VR stuff. I did get a cool demo of a new control system that I I'll save it for next uh, week. Did you play Quest Jumbotron? Did you guys talk about that I last didn't. week? Didn't. No, I know Jeremy Bug doesn't want it. It's it's out right now, um, but we gotta we gotta find some time and jump in our quest to play. Yeah, we haven't tried some of the rec room stuff in Quest. All right, well, thanks for having me, Norm. Duocast. Yes. Jeremy should be back next week, I believe. Jeremy should be back. It's going to be the week before we're all out again for mm-hmm. for Smithsonian, for DC, Apollo 11 anniversary, and Comic-Con. Norm and I will both be there. Maybe we'll do a, let's do a, let's do a, a episode of this Only Tessa Comic-Con. Oh, sure. We'll find yeah. some, there's a bunch of people down there I want yeah, Gunther's going to gonna be there. He talked Bitcoin at Comic Con. Uh, maybe, maybe, well, we'll decide. Nothing again. Yeah. That's not <laughs> about Gunther. That's about having an hour at Comic Con about Bitcoin. About about crypto. But we'll find some interesting people to chat with at Comic Con. If there's things you want uh, to see at Comic Con or want us to cover, hit us up. Let us know. Or uh, if you're showing something off at Comic Con. Yes, even yeah. better. TMs are open. Oh, you know, there's one thing I wanted to recommend um, that I forgot. Did you cover the mouse guard thing last week? Oh, I, we did not. So mouse guard was incredible uh, uh, graphic novel uh, developed by our friend Dave Peterson, which got opted into um, a a film that was being produced by Fox. It's been canceled. It's probably sort of dead in the water. Yeah, there was uh, from the director. They released a number of of uh, vids. Previs. They in, uh, in, in Unreal Engine. Reels. They basically scripted out entire scenes looks fantastic it's since been pulled down taken down Ooh, I maybe that's think, a good sign i don't know i don't think they were supposed to but i saw dave put it out on his twitter yeah too. well the director i think was yeah. told politely to to rescind oh 
well, I don't think it's it an looked indication amazing. that it's coming back. But if you got a glimpse at it, yeah, they put like over a year of work into this. Yeah, it was awesome. And just from the world building in the sizzle reel alone, it was pretty remarkable. I'm, it's so, I'm so bummed out because like Weta was involved through the characters, the, the effects team that did um, uh, Planet of the Apes, the mm-hmm. War of Planet of the Apes. So all that hair stuff, all the creature stuff, they were going to do that. But at this amazing story at the scale of the of uh, mice with, with swords yeah. um, and... You know, uh, Gary had had uh, written the the first script for it. He actually released the script he wrote. I think that is also taken down. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, 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 I missed all this takedown stuff. Studio IP, right? Oh, but yeah. Disney did the math and, for some one reason or another, decided. I mean, they get caught in the merger stuff. Yeah, it was. They were really close to starting filming on that. And yeah, it's just hugely disappointing. One plug, since you mentioned Gary, I, he's gonna he's revived his Twitch channel. And he's going to be doing a live cast when Book of Eli comes out on Netflix. It is out on Netflix. He's waiting a week um, for people to get a chance to watch, watch it. it. I, I believe it's next week. Yeah. So next week he's going to be doing a stream where everyone can simultaneously watch it. He's going to have the script up and kind of go through the movie. So if you're a fan of Gary's and the Book of Eli, it's going to be interesting watch. Hopefully Twitch partner Gary would have. We'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. I think he IRL streams in the bathroom, so we got to be careful about uh, that guy. All right. We got an outro this week from Jesse is from Earth, and this is despite the fact that you made a sweet quiche outro before. That's how much I care about you. Maybe. Here we come. Hi there. I didn't see you. That's it. On choosing you? Yes. Yeah. Apparently, phase two, oh, two. is actually going to involve phase one. one. The store, the wand store. store. You're just taking this, the uh, wand off the shelf, nicely packaged, but you're watching the short performance. No, we talked about this, right? Like, it's a small that. group of like five to seven people, and then the, the whole you know, match happens in the room, and uh-huh. then the, the performer, the lead wizard, picks a, a lucky child. The wand has chosen you. Now my assistant will escort you to the, the checkout counter <laughs> where the parents want you. Yeah, sorry, you don't get it for free. The parents want to spend, you know, 50, 100 bucks, whatever it is, wow. to, to buy that wand. They, they, they choose the children of the parents who look like the biggest suckers. suckers. Yes. Wohawk coming through with our theme park nightmare. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> See ya.